All right. Well, now that the computer is updated, um, <laughs> we, can, uh, we can go and get into our text. Uh, so we'll be looking today at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. I'll bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And uh, his father, this would be uh, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So two weeks ago, we began our series on the advent of Christ by considering the promise of a Savior in Isaiah chapter 9. Hundreds of years before Christ came, the people of God were promised a king, a great king from the line of David who would come and rule in perfection and bring peace to his people. That promise was given to meet the dire need of the people of God who dwelt in darkness. Now the promise has been made in Isaiah, as we saw two weeks ago. And we are in this text introduced to something, a sense, a feeling, an experience that is all too familiar to children around Christmas time. Anticipation, right? According to my five-year-old, Christmas is taking forever, forever to get here. Of course, as an, of course, as an adult, it's like barreling down like a train about to run me over in the tracks. Um, for those of you who are still rapping, I pray for you, okay? And pray for me as well. But... Uh, you know, but what gifts will I receive this year? Uh, how exciting it's going to be when Sunday, you know, next Sunday morning rolls around. Uh, and likewise, this text comes in the context of promises already made, promises that are beginning to be fulfilled in the world through the birth of John the Baptist and soon the birth of Jesus. This text thus is then is filled with anticipation of the coming Savior. Now, even as Christians who celebrate how the Savior has already come, as we celebrate at Christmas time, we yet await the return of Christ. The Christian experience is still one of anticipation as we wait expectantly. And, uh, and, and, but anticipation can lead us into some troublesome places. I know I've shared before about how when I was about 10 years old, I, in anticipation of Christmas, got the better of me. 
And so I knew where mom hid the presents that she hadn't wrapped yet. And so I went and snuck into her closet and I went and found and it, and sure enough, she bought the toy that I wanted so bad. Um, it's a Power Ranger toy. And, uh, and so I went and I, um, and so I went and carefully undid the tape and opened it up and pulled the toy out, played with it, put it together and stuff, and then carefully put it all back and slid it back in, you know, and, uh, and, and I got away with it. I got away with it. Um, and uh, so, but, but Sunday morning, I had, to, um, I, I had to open the gift that I already knew what it was and pretend to be surprised as what, oh, wow, I, didn't, I had no idea I was going to get this. And what was interesting, though, is that what should have been a moment of happiness and surprise and delight became a moment of guilt and disappointment. And it was one of those kind of natural lessons. I never went near her closet again <laughs> at Christmas time because it just I learned how, how, how that could go wrong. And, uh, and because I, I, in anticipation of Christmas, I tried to take a shortcut and I ended up coming up short myself in the department of joy. And we can do a similar thing in our own anticipation and faith. As we wait with anticipation for the return of Christ and and glory, we can try to take shortcuts to glory that only leave us disappointed. But Zechariah's song shows us actually where we are to look in our anticipation as we wait for the promises of God, even as they have been revealed in the coming of Christ already, as we wait for the fullness of those promises to come in the kingdom of God. And so Zechariah's song teaches us first to look to the promises of God, to, uh, to look, uh, first of all, sorry, to look to God himself first, secondly, to look to his promises, and then third, to look to the blessed way that he provides. And we'll look at each one this morning. So first, we are encouraged in our own anticipation of the fullness of the kingdom of God to look first to the blessed God in verses 67 and 69, because as Zechariah reveals, God is the only source of salvation. We need to not gloss over this note from Luke here that the Holy Spirit filled Zechariah. Thus his song here is not only recorded by Luke as words of the Lord, but the song itself is inspired by the Spirit. And so Zechariah, for his part, had earlier doubted God and had been struck silent until, in faith, he named his son John out of obedience, and his tongue was loosed. And the first words from his mouth was, were these words that Luke records. And they were words of praise. Blessed be God. Why? Because he has visited his people. Now, we have lots of family that may be visiting us, but the visiting of of the Bible is a very different aspect. When the Lord visits, uh, the Lord can visit unto judgment or, or a Lord can visit unto blessing. And so we're told that in the Old Testament that, uh, that Naomi and Ruth went back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, uh, the city there. They went to Bethlehem. Why? Because the Lord had visited Israel and ended the famine. Uh, you know, Israel was saved out of Egypt. Why? Because the Lord visited his people and freed them from slavery. 
And Zechariah knows that for his own son to be born as the forerunner of the Messiah means that the redemption of God is dawning upon the people and he turns and blesses God for it, for he has visited his people even at the beginning, starting out. He knows there is a chain of events that is now unfolding that is going to result in the revelation of salvation The light shining in the darkness. The awaited king from the line of David is coming into the world. He has raised up a horn of salvation. The horn being a symbol of power, like a horns on a bull. The horn, a symbol of power. The power of salvation has come now through the line of the house of David. Uh, And notice the verbs here in these verses in 68 and 69, how they focus on the activity of God, not his people, but the activity of God. It is God the Lord who has has visited, has worked, has raised up redemption and salvation for his people. The Lord has done only that which he can do and no other. The Lord is the one then who ought to receive first praise and glory and honor for all that he has done for his people. And because not only has he done it, but he's the only one who could do it. And so, and so as Zechariah's eyes lift to God to praise him, we are reminded ourselves to stop looking to the wrong sources of salvation. Our culture deeply and desperately wants us to find salvation somewhere other than God. Um, what's fascinating is I've been reading uh, with, uh, with the uh, pastors over at North Point. We've got a little pastoral reading group going. We've been reading uh, a book called The Philosophy of Revelation by Herman Bovink. Um, because who doesn't want to read a dead Dutch scholar, right? And so, um, and so we're, we're discussing it. And one of the things that essentially, it's just, he wrote these lectures in like 18, uh, like 96. And so we're, so we're discussing so these lectures. And, and he's going like, oh, yeah. And, he's, and he's, he's right there. Now, think about 1896. That's when the theory of evolution was really coming to play. And, and, and what's interesting is Bob, and he just writes, he goes, yeah, he's like, oh, well, this has been really, really kind of disproven. It's, it's, it's a very foolhardy, uh, foolhardy argument and stuff like that. Well, as it goes through, and you go through and you look at the earliest, the early 1900s and just prior to that and just after that, and there's actually not a, con- a conclusive reason why evolution, evolution is true. What happened was is that it got into the social consciousness. That is, as a society, so many people grabbed onto it and said, this is it. This is the truth. Uh, not because it's actually true, but because we want it to be true. Why? Because it gives us an alternative to God. It gives us an alternative to form a worldview where we don't need God anymore. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, so, and so our culture desperately wants us to hang on to that. We, can, um, we don't have to look to the scriptures for an understanding of where we came from. We don't have to look to the scriptures for understanding of human identity or human sexuality. We can just look to human psychology and combine that with evolution. You can design a whole, whole worldview. But the problem is that when you put that whole world together, it's radically incoherent. It doesn't work when you start putting the pieces together. It ends up looking like Frankenstein's monster. It looks like a bunch of cadaver parts just that you slap together because there's no life to it. And so, uh, and, and so our, our society largely wants us to seek our salvation, not in a being up above, but in scientific and technological advances, to seek our, our salvation in human intellect and the progress of society. Now, we, we don't need, and we just, and, and while you do that, just please ignore all the bodies that science and social progress have dropped along the way, all right? We don't want to talk about those. It's rude for you to even bring it up. Please stop doing that. 
Now, if that fails, perhaps we'll uh, combine those those things and, and, and just uh, all those things, uh, technological progress and and, and, and uh, social uh, social progress, and we'll we'll combine that with an inward uh, look into our very selves, where where that that's where salvation it's salvation is found within. Uh, follow your heart, uh, you know, uh, affirm yourself, um, it, and and which is very difficult because. Um, uh, because our society believes that um, it, we have this internal mysterious identity that's just waiting to be discovered. We don't know what it is. It's just in there. It's not an identity that is shaped or defined by our creator, by our community or our faith, but an identity that is defined by secret uh, sexual proclivities and appetites that are not even known to us until we discover them, coupled with a mysterious experience of gender that we just can't seem to define. But one thing our culture knows for sure is that deep down inside of us is a heart of gold, an amazing person who just needs unbridled affirmation rather than loving guidance, correction, or formation. And if, but unless you question it, then you're a terrible person, deep down inside. Now, we could go on, but the problem is, is that the history of humanity shows us that scientific, technological, and social progress does not solve the sinfulness of man. It just gives sinful men more advanced weaponry. <laughs> Not only is this worldview incoherent, but we know from history that men are not good by nature. That, that as if all men need are, is, is better education to bring out that human goodness. What do wicked men do with greater education? They do greater wicked deeds. The point is that human society and the inner being of man are not sources where salvation can be found because man is desperately fallen and wicked. The heart is desperately corrupt. If we are to be saved, if our salvation is to come uh, in, in, into its fullness, it will do so only because of the glorious, sovereign activity of God, our Creator and Redeemer, who visits us and works salvation for us in His blessed Son. And so we need to turn from human society. We need to turn from seeking salvation in our inner self and look to God as the true source of our salvation. And, uh, and as we do, we need to look to his blessed promises, as we see Zechariah doing in verses 70 to 75. And this is where we shift from the source of salvation to our assurance of salvation. Because assurance of salvation is found only truly in the promises of the covenant. That is where the, the assurance of our salvation is found. And Zechariah sings that God will bring this salvation because this is what he said he would do when he spoke through the prophets. The prophets like Isaiah, like we looked at two weeks ago, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, or others. And he says, this is a salvation, but what is this salvation? Well, he defines it. He says it is deliverance from our enemies, from, those, from the actual oppression our enemies put upon us, of those who hate the people of God. It is the Lord working mercy and remembering his covenant, his covenant he says, that he made with Abraham. So he's go, Zechariah is going all the way back to Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Covenant promises being found in Genesis 12, the covenant being made at the end of Genesis 15, and the covenant sign being given in Genesis 17. Going all the way back, uh, he, he goes there. Paul does the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. But Zechariah interprets those words of Genesis 
Those promises of God that he made to, uh, to, give, to have God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. He interprets those promises in this way, that God is going to deliver his people from their enemies, that they may worship him in piety and righteousness all their days. The promises then are covenant promises, sealed in blood, confirmed and, and clarified through the covenant with Abraham and, and the covenant that was made with Moses and the covenant that was made with David and the promised new covenant found in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel. Promises that God will deliver his people so that we may worship him forever. God then is promising something that we experience in part now as those who live in the light of Christ, but have yet to experience that promise in its fullness. In Christ, we have been delivered from judgment and the rule of sin over our hearts, but we have not been freed uh, from the experience of physical death. We have not been freed from the experience of grief and sorrow and loss, from the presence of sin in our mortal frame, or the opposition of the evil one in the world. But one day, what we know in part, we will experience to the full. And why? Because God promised to do it in the covenant. This is revelation from God, where he, where he makes his holy will understandable to his people, where he reveals his heart and his desire to us. And what does this revelation do that comes through the prophets uh, in the covenant promises? Not only does this, does this revelation that, Ezekiel is, that Zechariah is talking about here, not only does it help us to understand the births of John the Baptist and Christ in greater, with, with greater clarity to understand their significance, but it changes how we view history itself. For, for what is history except a, a bunch of things that happen? That's usually how students who hate history describe it. Just a bunch of stuff that happened before me. What do I care, right? But it's a fair question. What is it that gives those events meaning and significance? What is it that communicates causation, purpose, that relates these things to one another? Why do we care to make a sense of history? Why do we ask the question, why did this happen? The revelation of God through the prophets unites together hundreds, even thousands of years of history with a cohesive purpose and function. It takes the sorrows and sufferings of thousands, even millions of people and organizes it around the sovereign purpose of God ultimately to reveal salvation to the world in his blessed son. And even though scholars have attempted to move away, because I don't know if you, uh, you may know this, you may not know this, but uh, um, uh, academic scholars, they don't say A.D. or B.C. anymore. That they say, they say, uh, they say uh, B.C.E. and C.E. Because they don't want to say, they don't want to say stuff that has to do with Jesus. So that they, so they, so they now we have common era, C.E., which, re, which re replaces A.D. And then we have before common era, B.C.E., which replaces B.C. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, but the thing is, is you can call it different names, but why do you number it that way? You can't erase the significance of it, right? You can't, all your, if you're just swapping names, you cannot 
un, you cannot change the indelible mark that the birth of Christ has had on human history. That is, this, that is the organizing point of history, of world history, of how we understand time as humanity. I mean, think about that. No matter what anyone does, they cannot escape the fact that the history of humanity is organized around the birth, life, and ministry of Christ. Even if they change the names, even if they try to ignore it, the numbers do not lie. And so, the, and so it cannot change, even if they change the words as much as they like. Um, and so in all of this, we are reminded to look to the covenant promises that are in Christ that organize history, that reveal the incredible salvation that, that, that is in Jesus, and to, and, and to thus also stop looking to the wrong places to, for assurance of our salvation. Many Christians tur- turn to themselves when they look for assurance of their salvation. They, they, they turn to their own record of righteousness. They turn to their own sincerity of their own repentance. Uh, some will look to the perversity of our culture and, and, and by comparison saying, well, I'm better than that, and that will be their assurance. Some will look to their faith and, and, uh, and they'll say, well, well, I have faith, and, but how do you measure faith? I think you always get into a dangerous position when you start measuring faith, comparing faith, uh, comparing your faith to another. Um, uh, and, and, it's, and especially if we start treating faith as if it were a work. Because in all those instances, there we go again, turning to ourselves, right, for assurance. Turning to ourselves for assurance of salvation. Turning to the world for assurance of salvation. We cannot uh, uh, look either to the positive developments uh, or negative developments in our culture for assurance of our salvation. Because wherever we see any good growth of godliness, any positive encouragement, we can also find many examples of corresponding wickedness and evil in the world. Because there, there is a principle here. If something cannot be the source of salvation, then it cannot be the assurance of our salvation either. Okay? It cannot be a true and full assurance. Only in the promises of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, do we find assurance of salvation. Christ is the assurance of our salvation. It's Him. And so we must look to God as the source of our salvation, look to his covenant promises as, as, uh, as our assurance of salvation. And finally, we need to look to the blessed way of salvation that he provides. And the only way of salvation, as noted here by Zechariah, uh, is, uh, is revealed by God in his son Jesus through the work, certainly, and ministry of John the Baptist. Zechariah here in verses 76 to 79, he speaks of his son, John the Baptist, who will be called prophet of the Most High, he, who will go and prepare the way of the Lord in accordance with the prophecies of Isaiah concerning John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40. But make no mistake um, that salvation is not simply about improving the conditions of humanity. It is about the forgiveness of sins. That's what he says. That's what he sings about. The forgiveness of cosmic crimes that we have committed against the Lord. The revelation of salvation then is the revelation of the forgiveness of sin. The revelation of salvation is not the revelation of better opportunities or to be better people. It is the revelation of forgiveness and mercy to sinners and rebels and the condemned. And that is a great message. That is good news. That is something for an angelic choir to sing about, 
to shepherds on a dark night. It's not judgment that comes. It's not punishment that is deserved. But, but mercy for sinners. And why is this happening? Why does Zechariah say this is happening? Well, because of the affection of mercy, the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of our God, Zechariah says, is dawning upon the world of darkness to shine upon those who live in darkness in the shadow of death. The light comes and moves us from sitting in darkness to walking in the way of peace. There's a movement from sitting in darkness to walking, to guiding, guiding us in the way of peace. There's life as we live and we walk in the light. And Jesus, we know, told us himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life through whom we come to the Father. And no one can go to the Father to be received by the Father, except through Jesus. John the Baptist was born to pave the way for Christ. Jesus was born to illuminate our souls and direct us upon the path of salvation that is in Him, a path that is defined by mercy and the forgiveness of sins. There is no other way prepared by God for us to make use of. Jesus is the blessed way of mercy and forgiveness for sinners. That's it. And so we would do well then to be sure that we stop looking to the wrong ways of salvation. There are not, as our cultures want to say, many paths up the mountain. But we would remind others, and even as we remind ourselves, that the road to destruction is broad and many take it. And if we're told that's harsh, then just remind them that we're just quoting Jesus. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus is not here to encourage us in our own wonderfulness, to press us to save the world through the betterment of mankind. The way of salvation will not come through the endless pursuit of psychological self-improvement, self-discovery, or safety. The way of salvation will not come through some misguided pursuit of technological or social progress as if we're an episode of Star Trek. The way of salvation is not found inside of us individually or corporately. The way of salvation is the way that was paved by the prophet John the Baptist, the way which was revealed in the dawning of the life that is in Jesus Christ. There is still much darkness that we live in today. And the darkness only heightens our anticipation of Christ's return to bring in the fullness fullness of the promises of God, especially concerning his glorious kingdom. But in our anticipation, let us not take shortcuts to glory that will only lead us in bitter disappointment because they require us to place our trust in men or even ourselves. Rather, let us look to the blessed God, who is the only true source of salvation. Look to his blessed promises for the true assurance of uh, of salvation. And look to the only blessed way of salvation that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you reveal to us your salvation in your blessed Son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in him. 
that no matter where we are at this morning, whether we are in, uh, in, in sorrows, whether we are in triumphal joy, or just somewhere muddling in between, Father, we pray that we would lift our eyes with Zechariah unto you, that we would declare the praises you deserve, that we would, uh, that we would strengthen our assurance of faith uh, in your covenant promises, not in our own works, not in uh, that we're better than, than the fallen aspects of our society, uh, Lord, that we are we're, that not even in the sense of our own personal sense of our assurance, but that we would look to Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, coming again, reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We would look to the Son who was crucified and raised from the dead for our sake. We would point to Him and cry out, He is our assurance. He is the blessed Lamb of God, our Lord, our Savior, our King. And he is coming again. Father, may we look to him because he is the blessed way. And may we share that blessed way with those around us. And may and invite those others to join us as we walk along the narrow and hard path, strengthening one another, encouraging one another as long as today, uh, as long as it is called today, that we may not fall short but that we may all enter arm in arm into the eternal city as you await await us. And you strengthen us, Father, with your spirit. You, You bless us and you equip us with your word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless your people now, that we would strengthen ourselves in the promises that are in the gospel of your blessed son, Jesus. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.